So hello everybody and welcome back to Folk on Falklands. I'm Philip Mundy and joining me is... Ian Joseph. As always, you can find us on social media. So on Facebook, if you type in Folk on Falklands, you'll see our logo. And on Twitter, um, if you simply type in at Folk on Falklands, you'll also see our logo and our page. Yes, this week we'll obviously talk about the London Irish game. We'll look ahead to another Friday night, uh, look ahead to the next Falcons game, another Friday night or away to sail. Um, have a quick chat about um, a couple of other matters. There's some comings and goings, obviously, at this time of year. And then finally, we'll do the local and regional roundup. And we're getting to the point in the year where some of those leagues are pretty much um, firmed up who's going up or going down. So, um, unfortunately, once again, we'll try and avoid it turning into a rant because I know you've had a few of those lately, but it wasn't good and it wasn't helped by the referee. No, I mean, I don't want to talk about the referee too much um, because I think that is covering a bit, covering our faults a bit too much, a bit of a convenient excuse. But when we, we were woeful, referee aside. I um, mean, having said that, the referee did make some decisions maybe you were kind of scratching your head at. Probably you watching the stream had a better idea about some of those decisions than I did, so I'm obviously sitting in, a, in the West Ham. But... As I say, putting the referee to one side, if you look at ourselves, it was never a really, really poor performance. Um, if you look back to towards the end of last year, we had a really good home win against London Irish, where we were, yes, I think they did score quite a few points, but we, we were the much better side and we really deserved to win that game. Fast forward to probably the equivalent game a year later, and it's just such a difference how much better they are and how far backwards we've got in that space of time. Um, I thought London Irish were just stronger in absolutely every area. They were quicker, they were more dynamic with ball in hand, they were making really good breaks. The really good kind of short, accurate passing wasn't perfect all the time, but it was enough, and they, they, they probably knew that would be enough. Um, and the breakdown, I thought they were stronger. I mean, they might have, I don't think, did we even get any turnovers compared to multiple turnovers they managed? Just all over the pitch, they looked so much stronger. And it, you know, it showed, and I thought... It was a we only at half time. Obviously, we were sort of still in it. We were trying right on the break, but then we really had the moment to kind of get back into the game, which again they blew um, just for after half time. And then after that, it was only going to be sort of one result. It was a case of really sort of how many London Irish wanted to, to score, really. And it was, yeah, it's just another really miserable trip to Kingston Park, unfortunately. The game started off almost all right for the first seven or eight minutes or so. We had our chance to get our noses ahead, but we. Managed to overthrow a line-out, which has certainly become a bit of an issue in the last few games. But um, then from then on, they got to the end of the pitch and it was the simple set piece. Um, a scrum that got reset three times. Not sure why it wasn't a penalty to us on one of the occasions. This is one, maybe first scrum in the game, let it go. But then we did this thing where we make four of our players charge upon one London Irish player and then walk it into the corner, not a finger anywhere near him. Then we did very well, actually. From kickoff, we got back in the game. Within two minutes, we'd scored. And that was just from playing simple rugby, one-out stuff, quick ball, and exploiting the gaps around the edges. And then, sure enough, the pressure paid. And uh, Robinson gets in more or less under the posts. And why we can't just do that for an entire match? I just don't understand it. It was almost like for that, two minutes after we regained the kickoff, why didn't we just play like that for the entire game? It wasn't difficult it's just simple stuff executed well and not dropping the ball yeah i mean everyone knows that if we just play like that you know we're bound to 
to be better and score more points. And it's absolutely bemusing as to why they don't, whether it's a question of the, the coaching or the, the tactics, which is the players themselves seem to just panic when they actually get a bit of attack going because maybe we're not used to it, or combination of, of all the above. Who knows? I mean, I suppose one positive I, we can take going from the way we played was there was much less of the aimless kicking, uh, which was nice to see. I mean, I don't know if it made much difference to the result, but I think as a spectacle, it did make it nice to see. It did mean that perhaps we did facilitate more with with the ball in hand. But you, you're right. I mean, if they just do the basics well like that, we're going to get more success. On the aimless kicking front, I think that we have to give credit some of that to London Irish because they weren't aimlessly kicking at us, so we didn't aimlessly kick it back. So in terms of kicking tennis... It wasn't, it was a case of, yeah, every now and again we did aimlessly kick it, but they ran it back at us, so it wasn't quite as obvious. But what I would say is it was only the last five minutes when we started doing box kicks. And it was basically, at that point, we'd run out of ideas in the game and I think everyone was just wanting to get back into the showers and forget about the match. And then the box kicks came back. But it was quite refreshing in a way that we kept the ball at times in the match and didn't just kick it back to them without any reason. Yeah, I mean, mentally, I was sort of thinking before the match, oh, it's going to be a tale of two fly halves because uh, obviously we all know how good Paddy Jackson is. I mean, personally for me, I actually think he's been consistently the best fly half in the Premiership for the past few years. Maybe a controversial opinion, but I really, really like him. Not always a kicker, but generally as a fly half, his general player. I love how he keeps the game ticking over. Um, and he did that again the other night. And, I, you know, you saw Hodgson, you're a bit, oh, you know, heart and mouth a bit but actually credit to him I actually apart from a few bit odd penalties which they just in terms of the, the kick for touch which were a bit short for some reason but is, I thought Hodgson's general player I thought was the best senior for a really long time um, I thought he looked really sharp he's like good darting runs which you know we could do he was making making yards I thought he was you know he was quick on ball and in defence I thought he was really good I thought he was probably the pick of the bunch actually for us so as I say I was kind of thinking oh, I was going to be a tale of two very different fly halves but actually they wouldn't say they matched each other but I would have thought Hodgson credit to him was actually our best player but I think it is a difference when you do have players like Paddy Jackson um, I for um, their centres as well were really good um, that did kind of make the difference in many ways. Yeah, and what, what I'd also say is that whether it's Paddy Jackson or just attack in general, there was such a gulf between the two sides. Um, we were employing a defensive kind of rush-up strategy to begin with, which left the, the wings quite wide open. But London Irish countered that by having a deep second wave of attack. So that would either be, you'd have someone looping around from in to out, normally the fly half or somebody who'd come from the, the blind side, or you'd have the, a second wave of attack made up of perhaps the fullback and the blind side winger. And they were getting it to their second wave of attack and then attacking us before we could realign. And then they're finding the gaps and getting around us. Whereas we were trying the same thing at times, but our second wave was three or four yards deeper and the intensity wasn't there. And then it just means that you have three defenders and one attacker because you, the defenders have had time to realign. And it's one of these things where you need a good player on the pitch, i.e. Jackson, Jackson, to be able to exploit it. But also, training-wise, you need something to instruct players to run these things at pace. And is it that in training, they haven't got the squad ability to be able to practice defending against a decent attack or practice attacking against decent defence? Because it just seems like we were completely out of our depth in both areas that kind of the opposite of each other. I mean, as good as Irish attack is, was, I mean, we know how good they are. They regularly score lots and lots of points. 
they didn't have to work for it. Uh, you're right in that so many times we were caught short out wide, which has been a problem consistently actually all season, but it was really exposed the other night. Um, it was just so simple. As you say, it was just a couple of phases. They would take it up, pass it out, and then just our defence would rush up, obviously be sucked into that first phase, pass out, and there's all that space in the world on either side, and they just walked in or, you know, dived into the corner for, I mean, it's good, at least three of their tries. Um, it's just... It just made it too easy. I mean, there have been times this season, especially last season, where, you know, we could defend really well against that and we did improve our defending out wide and we, we could nullify that a bit more. But that just seems to kind of completely gone by the wayside now. And and it's not just the fact that you would think, oh, maybe that happened once or twice, especially if they're a man down. But you think that the coaching team or, or players on the pitch would kind of, why can't they kind of reorganise that ad hoc on the fly? I think, right, we, we've got to change our defence here or our, our structure to kind of counter that. Um, and it just didn't seem to happen at all. They were just so exposed. And it seemed to me also that when they did make breaks, they seemed to have a, load, a lot more support as well. Um, which got them obviously far more ground in those breaks than we did. I think the, what summed it up, I think, was Lockwood had a really good break towards the end, had absolutely no support with him at all. And I think if that was the other way around, if he was playing for Irish and he made that break, it would have been a try. It would have probably just walk, been a walk for under the post. And I mean, that, that unfortunately is the difference at the moment. As we mentioned at the start, we're not going to dwell on the referee too much, and we haven't. We've focused on the performance, which was complemented by a very poor refereeing performance, um, a lot of people have said. Watching it on the TV as opposed to being at the ground, there are a number of decisions which would strike me as a bit odd, but I don't think he was necessarily biased against Falcons. I think he's one of these referees where he referees in favour of the team in the ascendancy. And if you get on the wrong side of the scoreline or the wrong side of pressure, then he will penalise you. If there's a, a big tackle goes in, invariably the defending team ends up with a penalty. There's no rhyme or reason to it, but it happened both ways around that if we put a big tackle in, we ended up with a penalty. But um, for me, the main talking point and perhaps the thing that swung the momentum in the first half the most was Robinson's yellow card. And I, I still can't work out which law in the law book he's applied to it because it makes... I, I just can't work it out. And the referee... Blew for a penalty, went over to speak to the touch judge. The touch judge basically said, I don't really know what you're going on about. The TMO kind of described what happened. And then Dixon, in my eyes, completely misinterpreted the law. But Robinson gets 10 minutes and then suddenly we're two tries further behind. The law that I believe Dixon was trying to apply was the, you've got to, if you're within one metre of the, the breakdown, you can't interfere with the tackled player, I pick the ball up, you've got to go around and go through the gate. But as far as I was concerned, it was open play because an offload was being performed. So if a tackle's been completed, fine, but then you shouldn't have the player offloading off the ground because that's playing on the floor. If a tackle's not been completed, he can offload it, but then there's no offside lines or anything. And the ball was basically thrown against Robinson. It's not like he deliberately went out his way to do anything. It was thrown towards him. He tried to catch and he dropped it, albeit he dropped it backwards, so it wasn't a knock-on. Then he gets a yellow card for his troubles. And I still can't work out what law, or if, if it was a law that was genuinely applied correctly. I've never seen it before. And I can't find it in the rule book. I, I just don't understand it. Yeah, well, I mean, sitting there, it was really hard to tell what it was for. I mean, initially, I just thought, oh, maybe it's still deliberate knock on because see, when you're watching in real, real time, that's what you think it could only be. Or you're somehow offside and you, you'd you know, block the ball through flight or something. But um, then when they went to the big screen, um, I mean, probably Kingston Park, I think, you can't actually see the big screen that well, really. Um, and again, it was very difficult to kind of tell 
tell, especially without any about the ref's audio, kind of what was going on. And again, I, must, I thought, well, it's that's not really a deliberate knock on. I thought, what is this for? Um, and then I had to use the, the Twitter page, which said, you know, through the gate or whatever. And I was quite amused at that. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it was a crucial point of the game because you have to think well if he wasn't sin bin then maybe we would have maybe not conceded those two tries only conceded one try in that period but I don't think it would affect the result unfortunately maybe affect the scoreline that maybe a bit more closer than it, it did turn out to be but it was a big decision which didn't go away and it is a bit of a questionable one to say the least and unfortunately unfortunately you know if you're on the back foot all the time and you know you're kind of holding on in there dear life sometimes these things happen as you say I think it is can be fairly common that referees kind of give the benefit of the doubt to the team that is on top which of course was Irish and I think unfortunately this is kind of what happens to us at the moment yeah and then um, throughout the game those different interpretations of laws such as getting the knee down to make a tackle and things um, there's a very good example where Penny was being dragged along on his knees then it was a turnover and the putting mental London Irish but equally he applied that law incorrectly the other way around as well. I think he's just a bad referee as opposed to a biased one, which is what a lot of people are saying. It does make it tricky. And also, I think part of the problem is he's one of these ones that used to be a player and he's been on the RFE pathway for players to become referees and whatnot. And no one's going to admit defeat because he gets accelerated through the ranks artificially quickly. And I think he's now been lined up for some of the internationals. And you think, hang on a second, that standard referee on the international stage, it's an embarrassment for the RFU to be putting people forward for that. But anyway, then the final one in the game was the, the two red cards. It seemed like a storm in a teacup as far as I'm concerned. End of the first half, there was a good bit of pushing and shoving. But I'm sure a lot more went on that we could have dwelt upon if he wanted to. But then he decided to send Gary Graham and whoever the London Irish back row was for locking horns like a... It wasn't even headbutting each other, it was just... Forehead to forehead, which you say how many times every game? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely very much a case of handbags at the end of the match. I think, you know, referees should have just kind of let it go, let it sort of calm down. Nobody was injured. There was no really kind of serious foul play. At least he did kind of send both off rather than just send Gary Graham off. But yeah, that, that was a that was a, quite obviously a really odd, poor decision. I mean, I think maybe the fact that that stage of the game was truly gone, and I don't think it obviously really mattered part of the fact Gary Graham being available for a period of time now. But that was quite obviously a poor decision the wrong decision and just wasn't necessary from the referee yeah so what annoyed me quite a lot was the TMO was effectively saying I don't think it's a red card it's a yellow card almost pleading not to dish out two red cards and Carl Dixon seemed to have made his mind up as soon as he saw it that Gary Graham was going to get red carded then he couldn't justify just doing that and not red card in the Irish player too so both of them get red cards two minutes from the end of the game What if he'd have just given yellow cards I still think it would have been ridiculously harsh but then at least they're not banned because the only way that Gary Graham is not going to get a ban for a headbutt is if they overrule Carl Dixon which they're not going to do if he pleads innocent he'll just get told nah it was a red card sorry we're back our referee's decision and it was a red card now you've pleaded innocent and we say you're guilty you're going to get a longer ban so that's probably Gary Graham's last performance of the season. And um, there we go. We have to hope it's not too long. It doesn't go to next year too much. So if we just look at the match day experience, obviously I was watching on the, the box and it seemed quite quiet without many fans. Is it the only people turning up now with the season ticket holders that can bear it or want to get their money's worth out of the season ticket? Or was there a bit more atmosphere than perhaps came across on the on the TV? Not really. I mean, I think the crowd was something like about 4,500, which for a league game, especially maybe towards the end of the season, the league game is pretty poor. Um, I don't remember it being as low as that. I think even maybe the championship season, uh, we weren't getting crowds quite like that. Well, it's 
Oh, obviously, it's really sort of upsetting, but at the same time, what do you expect? I mean, we've only realistically, you know, I doubt we're going to beat Leicester at home. We're only going to have two wins all season. You know, if you're a, a more casual fan or you're not a season ticket holder, then, you know, why are you going to pay not particularly cheap prices to go and see them, you know, very likely lose, especially as, of course, you now have the pay the 4 99 for your streaming service and you just stay at home and watch it for a fraction of the price. But yeah, I, I think it's all sort of beginning to, to tell. I mean, at the end of the day, like, fans can only take so much and you know they don't you know they've got the hard-earned money and do they want to spend it on that uh, i mean you've only got sort of the season ticket holders or other fans who may do turn up to games all the time season ticket or otherwise who, who do go and it, it is really really sad but unfortunately it can't really kind of no one to blame apart from ourselves really because it's just simply the team isn't good enough to kind of warrant a large crowds unfortunately i mean so i think the atmosphere boy did suffer a bit and i think the fact that there was it was a hammering as well meant the crowd was pretty quiet apart from obviously the odd moment of excitement but yeah i mean pretty sad state of affairs unfortunately yeah one thing that did come across on the tv was you you had the chap with his microphone saying Come on, Falcons, give it some noise and there'll be a kind of a, a light murmur and a few children hollering. But um, I think we should start a feature of at what point and at what scoreline is Sweet Caroline belted out? Because inevitably every single game that comes on at some point, normally when we're 30 points to the, the wrong side of the scoreline, uh, somewhere in the second half, what was it this week? Oh, I mean, it was probably about that. I mean, I've made my views very clear on playing Sweet Caroline over the past couple of years. But yeah, you've got to think there's a time and a place. I mean, if you are going to play your crap music, then there's a time and a place for particular songs at a particular time. It's just a load of rubbish. Like, it's just unnecessary. And it's just, the impression I get, I know obviously they're not trying to do this. They're trying to generate a bit of an atmosphere. But the impression I get, is just, it's almost like, ah, oh, it's just a bit of fun. We're not bothered. We don't care. You know, yeah, we're getting hammered. But woo, here's a nice, happy song for everyone. On. And it just makes like a mockery of it, really. You know, you got to think if you're the one playing those songs, you really want to play a song like that when you, as you say, put your points down. It just makes it ridiculous. And it's, it's you know, there's no wonder if you're sitting there having your match experience, you, you know, you're sitting there, you're paying a lot of money, your team's getting hammered, and suddenly you're getting cretin songs like that coming on. You know, are we surprised that crowds are so low? Maybe not. Yeah, it's almost like the, um, you know, when you, you just try and speak, get some customer service and you speak to a call desk and um, the person on the other side of the world's got their script and they go through it and you can't get any sense out of them. It's almost like that's the that whoever's got the record player's got their script and at 60 minutes you're going to press play when there's a line out, irrespective of the line out is on our own five metre line or the team's five metre line, irrespective of the score line, Sweet Caroline will be sung, everybody will go da-da-da and everyone will go home happy. And there's just, <laughs> it needs someone with a bit of comprehension of the game just to think, hang on a second, maybe we should play a sombre melody from Bark or something. Well, or, or not play Sweet Caroline where they where the opposition has a five metre line out and about to rumble over for their sixth try of the match or something. But yeah, that's exactly it, isn't it? It probably is that. They probably do have like a script, don't they? And it is play Cretton Song A on 20 minutes, play Cretton Song B on 35 minutes. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it just sums it all up, doesn't it? God, terrible. <laughs> <laughs> So if we carry on our run of Friday night games next week, we're up against Sale away. This has been a good hunting ground in the past, but not sure this year is going to be one to write home about, certainly where we're playing at the minute. Well, yeah, I mean, it's hard to be optimistic about any game coming up. Sound like I broke a record, but it's just—it's going to have to be the same in terms of, you know, we know that we can kind of sometimes have a bit of a performance in batches, um, in periods of matches, which might be enough. I don't think Sale are quite as proficient over the try line as 
Irish are, but it's going to be really, really tough. And we know how strong Sale are. And yeah, I think we just have to hope that we can kind of, well, have a better performance and hope that kind of gets us a bit of the way. And look, I mean, the objective now is trying to finish the higher league as possible. Um, if we somehow finish in third bottom, then that would be an absolute miracle. Uh, but it's actually, despite everything, quite achievable because obviously Worcester are a couple points behind us, Bath are still behind us. And, you know, those teams are not going to pick up a lot of points between now and the end of the season. So we just kind of have to try and maintain that. I mean, it's not the most, you know, wonderful goal in the world, but to finish sort of third bottom somehow, I suppose, would be something. And that's what they have to do. They, just try, they have to just try and keep in games and see if we can come away with at least, you know, some sort of losing or try bonus point. And that that should be enough to keep us ticking over to avoid slipping down the league. But yeah, that's what's going to have to be really, not just for sale, but I think in the next next few games as well. Yeah, it's a bit of an annoyment having a Friday night actually, because to get there for kickoff after work is pushing it quite a lot. It's one of these ones where if it was on a Saturday afternoon or even a Sunday afternoon, Sunday makes away travel a lot easier. And um, it might have been nice for sale to, to give us something where we could travel to after the fact that they cancelled our fixture at Kingston Park on Boxing Day. But there we are. I guess we get a season where we don't see sale at all. Yeah, well, I doubt they'd be that generous. But I think Salem usually play their games on a Friday night, I think. I think they're one of the very first pioneers, actually, to play their games Friday night. So I think they do actually do a lot of them that day. Um, I mean, I suppose you'll have the usual Hardy Falcons fans go down. But it would have been nice to have had it, as you say, more convenient time because it would have been good to have a lot of our sport has come down to, to make a bit more. I mean, they market it as a bit of, you know, a Northern derby, if you call it that. I think it would have been nice to have allowed more Falcons fans to, to make their retreat to travel down, considering we haven't actually, you know, the teams haven't actually played each other this season, certainly at least in the league. Yeah, don't get me started on when they call it the Northern derby, because they would never call half the teams in the south of the country derbies when they're a heck of a lot more accessible between the two locations than we are but anyway that's one for another day if we just look at some of the comings and goings for the Falcons there's been a bit of news on that this week obviously it's that time of the season the or not the comings so much but the stayings one that caught me by surprise was Philip van der Velt signed a three-year deal which um it's great news because I really like like the way he plays and he seems to always have a good game or never have a bad game but three years for a 34-year-old's a big show of faith in him. Yeah, I mean, I suppose in a way, I guess he's warranted it. Uh, I mean, he's never put a foot wrong. He's always been incredibly reliable. I mean, he has been a really, really good signing. Um, never let, you know, obviously never lets anyone down. Always puts a really good shift in. Very versatile. Um, I mean, maybe it's a case that he's given such a long contract because both he and the club feel that he does have he can continue that for a couple more years. Uh, maybe he's really settled here. Maybe the club view him as quite a cheap option as well, which seems to be a major consideration at the moment. So maybe for all parties, it works out quite well. But it is odd to see um, such a relatively long contract for, uh, you know, play with a quite a mature age. But I'm glad he's staying, actually. You know, he's definitely adds to the squad and I suppose we look forward to seeing him in the next three years then, I suppose. Yeah, as he showed at the weekend, he's a very very good player to have in a squad because his versatility. He can play right across the back row. Don't see him at open side as much, but he can also play the second row as well. And it wouldn't surprise me if he's one of the these players where he's on the books for three years as a player, but he moves into a coaching role towards the end of it. And he might be lined up for in three years time, becoming more of a regular fixture behind the scenes. He seems to know the game reasonably well. And he's been in the Northeast for a number of years now. And if he's here for another three, he might I don't know his personal circumstances, but it wouldn't surprise me if he's got partner or children who are quite happily settled here. And um, he might be an adopted Geordie before too long. Seems to be a good week for the overseas players in general because 
two two other players have had their extensions named. Um, Carreras, uh, another two years, which I think all of us are quite pleased with, uh, despite what we said after he had his engagement with Bassett a couple of years ago when he was sticking his fingers in the eyes. But he's certainly proved himself to the club and he's a very good player and I'm glad to see him sign up. And the one that another one that caught me out hasn't been officially released yet as of Sunday afternoon, but I believe it before the match in the club Q&A with the fans, it was mentioned that Orlando has um, also signed an extension, which is very good news. And I hope that he manages to remain injury-free for the next two years. Yeah, I mean, a touch with Carreras first. Yeah, I mean, I think he's proved to supporters and obviously the club that he is a, a very good player. I mean, didn't have perhaps the best start, as you say, that, that poking incident. But since then, he has proved actually what a quality player he is and um, definitely a player worth having you scored. I mean, he's, he has improved. You can tell that in all aspects of his game and shown that he's now being picked you know, fairly regularly for Argentina now. So they obviously must kind of see that in him. Um, and I think, to be fair to the Falcons, they've kind of developed him into a you know fairly regular international player. So yeah, obviously really glad to have him. I think the key for us of our wing is that we, we know we have really, really good wingers, but the key for us now is to actually get them more involved in the game. Like all the other wingers, if you give the ball to Carreras and you get him involved in the game, he's going to be dangerous. So yeah, obviously it's great that, that he is for another, here for another couple of years. And Orlando is another one um, where actually that's a more surprising one, I think, because I think a lot of us may have thought, oh, well, you know, he's had a couple of years and then move on. But the key for him is, of course, keeping him injury free and to allow him to have a bit more of a run of games because we know that when he does play well he can be a real asset but it's just kind of obviously getting the minutes out there and you know he's going to be such an important player because if he can keep fit then he's going to be a real asset in an area that we are very weak in and that is the centre so fingers crossed that he does have a bit more fitness a bit more form next couple of years we do see more from him but um, yeah it, it is a positive signing at least anyway Yeah it's also good that the club's obviously retaining its Argentinian influence because um, we've had a good little Production line of players over the years from there, if you think about the Sassinos, etc. Um, and then one final one, Penny signed an extension as well. No surprises there. It's his boyhood club. And aside from the short amount of time he spent at Quinn's, I think that it's his club and it always will be. Yeah, um, I think the thing with Penny is I think generally he has improved. I think he's f- fairly... Um, a consistent player for us. I mean, with Mike Brown going, of course, then he is, you will be the number one choice you would have thought fullback unless they sign anyone else in that position, which probably unlikely. But um, yeah, I mean, we know that he actually can be pretty good on his day. And yeah, I, I think he does have, still have more room to actually become a better player. And you just kind of hope that over the period that he can, I think he still is kind of fairly young as well. But yeah, but it's important that we do kind of, I suppose, retain not only just kind of these core players, but also in positions where we are not exactly strong in, and that is fullback and centre as well so obviously we'd like to see new signings come in but you've got to have the kind of bedrock of existing players who perform regularly you know fairly well to kind of build upon that and I think to be fair to the club they seem to be doing that to a degree yes and then one final new signing um, that's I've seen mentioned in the rugby paper but it's one of these ones where I'll, I'll believe it when I see it in uh, one of the the larger ones or club statement is a chap called Simpson from Gloucester um 34-year-old scrum half. He hasn't played a great deal in the last season or two. Don't know too much about him uh, Gloucester, but I know he played Wasps and got a lot of caps to them, 230, but he only got the one England cap. I think he's one of these uh, players that got a cap for England and that meant he couldn't play for any of the other countries that are eligible for because I think he's eligible for Australia and perhaps Ireland as well. Very strange one as far as I'm concerned. What are we gaining by signing a 34-year-old scrum half? 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's not one that kind of sets the polls for racing. It does raise more questions, actually. You're right. I mean, it's too old. It's it's an injury-prone player. You know, we're seeing this. Unfortunately, the players we're linked with seem to kind of have this pattern of, you know, all these just players which are just surface the requirements of the clubs for obvious reasons, in which case, you know, how are they going to improve us? Part of just having extra bodies in there. Answer is probably, unfortunately, not. So that that, that is a worry. Um, you know, like all these players, you know, they could prove me wrong or prove us wrong. They could actually have really good signings for a year or two. But it's not, you know, we don't want to go in this direction of kind of signing these sort of crooked old these crooks, sorry, rather, old players, um, because what they're going to do for, you know, are they really going to improve us? You know, we're in a bit of a desperate situation. We need to improve results. Yes, I understand that the financial pressure of the club, you know, it's super well known. And I know that, you know, the emphasis of the club is to try to look to the academy rather than to bring in a lot of players from outside. But, you know, these type of players, if you're going to move players from outside, this is, I personally know that this is the way to do it. And it's not very encouraging, unfortunately. But, you know, like I say, could be wrong and they could be great signings but you know they are just rumours so let's see kind of what happens I suppose over the summer Yeah it seems to me that what we need is a young dynamic speedy scrum half much like Nordi Clemetti who we've already got if we're going to replace with anyone not somebody who would be not too dissimilar to Mickey Young or probably worse than Sam Stewart but anyway there we go Um, and then one going which hasn't been confirmed by the club but I know the you're, you're the social media one about us. Um, what was it that Luther Burrell put on his um, Twitter or Facebook or whatever it was this yeah, week? Yeah, yeah. So he, I don't think it was too cryptic, really. He was he put on a he actually regularly quite he regularly puts pictures on his Instagram of a sort of training at Kingston Park or whatever. And you know he did say, "Oh, not long, not not much time left in the tune or whatever." And I think you know there was other rumours going on message boards and our social media that he was being released at the end of the season. Um, I guess not a surprise. Whether it's right or wrong, I don't think, as I said, I mean, it is a surprise. I mean, you know, um, can the club sort of afford him? Is he worth the money in terms of if, if how injury-prone he now is? You know, obviously he is of an age now where he does get injuries. You know, he, he is out for sustained periods, unfortunately. Obviously not his fault, but that's just kind of the nature of it. As I say, whether it's right or wrong, I'm not sure. I'm genuinely not sure yet. As I can see the positives and negatives of it. But like I said, I don't think it's, it's a great surprise. And, but it's, a, it's it's one of our best centres gone. So again, you know, that is a position where we, we desperately need to strengthen it. And the emphasis is now on the club to kind of fill that gap. And, you know, they'll be judged about whether they can do that and not so much whether they've released Burrell or not. Yeah, so with Burrell leaving, unless we get somebody new in, which isn't out of the question, but does that mean our centres next year will be Orlando at 12 and Stevenson at 13 maybe? Or cling on to Max Wright a bit longer? Because I think he's actually played all right the games he's played this season. But it does look an area we're quite vulnerable in and we've certainly had enough notice that we need to improve that area of the pitch. Yeah, well, I mean, Orlando or Lukov perhaps or a combination thereof. But yeah, it, we all know that it's it's fly half, scrub half and centres and we are so desperately in need of, of reinforcements. Um, and you've touched it before, you know, sort of half-jokingly, you just go to Fiji and pick a couple of lads off the beach or whatever. But you would have thought that these positions shouldn't be too difficult to... Oh, all right, okay, scrum half and fly off to get decent of those, perhaps. But you would have thought centres, particular, you would have thought that's not too difficult to get some some decent players in there, or at least kind of strengthen above average or what we have now, because even that would help us. Whether it will dramatically improve results, I don't know, but it might help enough um, to be in a better position. So I think the club probably will strengthen there. But again, you know, they'll be judged on the quality of the signings, not so much if they can, well, I guess, as well as if they can bring bodies in, but they do need to actually add to the squad, not just sort of be old players who are injury prone, And because what's the use of that? Yeah, I think centre's one of the funny ones, actually, because 
I think nationally, there's a complete shortage of inside centres. You look at most of the centres in the Premiership, or particularly 12s in the Premiership, a lot of them are South Africans or Antipodeans or Islanders. And why is it that there are so few of them? And that's reflected in England as well. We've got Manitou Langin. Apart from that, we don't really have an inside centre that can play for the country. Is it because everybody that is a suitable 12-year, big, strong, ball-carrying, dynamic 12 that everyone likes gets turned into a back rower as a teenager? Or is it that they just get lost because it's not such a glamorous position? So coming through, they drop out of favour in uh, county setups or whatever. What's the reason, do you think, that there's so few decent inside centres that are English? I, I just can't quite put my finger on it. I mean, maybe you have kind of hit the nail on the head there. Maybe there's those reasons you listed. Um, possibly, as it could just be, it's not a glamorous position. I guess when you are developing, you know, if you do see like a, a big mobile Youngster coming through, you think instantly, oh, back row. Yeah, back row, there we go. Um, and then, you know, I guess it's easier perhaps to kind of develop as a back row because you don't necessarily need the handle skills as a back row as you would for an inside centre. Um, so then you kind of are left, but, but then if you're not big enough, then oh, you play as 13 or wing or fullback. And then you think so maybe inside centre kind of falls down that gap, doesn't it, between the kind of two sort of body types, I call it that. But yeah, there is a sort of dearth of quality there. Um, it's curious, and but it's, I'm not entirely sure if it's just restricted to England that I think maybe you've seen other international teams perhaps they not don't quite have a strength of depth there but again but the flip side of that is that if the level of 12 generally is not far as perhaps in other positions then surely that doesn't make it that, that can make it easier to buy a 12 who could, is as least as good as many of the other 12s in the Premiership um, and perhaps because it's a less glamorous position again you know it may be cheaper to, and easier to stop to fill actually ironically by the end of it but yeah it, it is a curious one and it doesn't just seem to be us or indeed England I think it, you do see it quite commonly throughout many teams there isn't much cover at 12 Yeah and then also whilst we're just talking about departures it, it seems that everyone's I still don't think it's been officially released, but Dean Richard seems almost certainly moving on to some consultancy role at the end of the year. I'm not sure personally if it's going to be a bit like the Alex Ferguson effect in football at Man United, where somebody sits in the stands and still pulls the strings or doesn't pull the strings, but no one really knows where they stand. And is it better if there's a clean break or is it better to keep involved with the club? It's a very difficult one. I don't know the answer, but I do worry a bit when you see these sort of contrived situation is it is it better just to have a bit of a clear out and be as ruthless and as brutal as that sounds i don't know um i have a clear idea and i think a clean break is definitely the best thing i mean but you you're right to bring up the alex ferguson example because you know it must be so difficult for if you're man united manager to have sort of alex ferguson sitting there behind you you know every game um but it's not quite the same with the focus obviously dean richards hasn't been as successful with us as Alex Ferguson was with, with Man U. No, you've got to have a clean break because what's the point of having him sitting there? You know, you could, we're desperate for a new coaching team, a new set of ideas. And, you know, unfortunately having Dean Richards, I don't, what, what will he add? I, I, don't, I don't understand sort of the benefit of having him there. Either, you know, you have the coaching, the current coaching staff, you know, with a tweak here or there, or you just, or, or you get someone, you get someone completely new in which was what most other teams do. Surely that's got to be the best way to, for, you know, being obviously frankly vicious for all this time at the club, be very committed to us, did a lot of good things, but it's been, what, 12 years now? And, you know, it's time for a change and you actually make that change. You don't sort of piss a pattern, sort of do, you know, half this, half that. You you make the change. So I think it's really, really important that the, the club does get this right. And I mean, I, do, I know they probably won't listen to this, but I, I would 
plead with them to kind of be brave and, and take that decision because I think it, that is the best decision going forward. And I think as supporters, that's the decision we're all looking for. Whether they will do that, I don't think they will. And I think that's actually quite worrying um, because you don't want to be in a position where you've got sort of demons just sitting there in the stand and you say, let's say Dave Walder gets promoted. Let's just say he gets promoted to, to director of rugby role. What's the point of having Dean Richards sitting up there when you got Dave Walder is actual director of rugby? It's, it's, it's absurd. And you need the clean break. But unfortunately, I, I don't think we're going to see it, which is a... Uh, yeah, as I say, I think it's quite worrying. Yeah, and then if we just touch on things, um, there's also been rumours about Mark Wilson potentially coming back into the fray. I'm not sure what his relationship with Dean Richards is. I know that he didn't really get a usual send-off for somebody who's served for that long from the club. It was very much a, here's a bit of applause, cheerio. And not a dicky bird's been heard or seen of him since, I don't think. But is that something going on behind the scenes? Who knows there? But then one other thing that I've noticed is when transfers get announced or whatever, quite often players are rested uh, thereafter or dropped. It's sort of Hayden wouldn't, but he was back to the bench the weekend. But I know a couple of weeks ago there were rumours about Fuso and he's not featured at all recently. Not sure if he's injured or not. But also Radwan's been on the bench for a couple of games. And I know that there was a bit of talk around Christmas, January time that he'd been seen at Leicester's training ground and whatnot. And we mentioned that we really hope he doesn't go elsewhere but is him being on the bench a sign that maybe he's off I really hope not but I do worry well I mean there's always that worry isn't it at the back of your mind I mean every time you see some sort of news story about the Falcons you think oh is this it is Radwan gone but I, I think that one's harder to judge because I think Radwan actually recently has been starting games um, I'm pretty sure he started against Glasgow and Tebra as well so I mean they have they, they, they do play him regularly it's not the case of like Hayden Wood where he's quite obviously just completely out of the picture or Mike Brown is just even more completely out of the picture now I would still retain a bit of hope that that isn't the case as per those two that he is completely gone I think maybe for whatever reason, rightly or wrongly, they're rotating some of the players or some of the, some of the wingers, which they have done quite a bit over the course of the season. And, you know, he's still very much involved in that squad. He came on as a sub, but I think, I, I do think if he wasn't playing, unless they were desperate, which they're not desperate for wingers, I don't think at the moment, unless injuries are that bad. You know, if he was going, I think he just, like the other two, he just wouldn't be featured at all. So I still am 70 uh, 30 optimistic that actually he, he is as things stand staying. And we'll, again, we'll have to see at the end of the season. Right, so I think there's only one other bit of rugby news that um, we need to discuss. Do get in contact with anything you'd like us to talk about, because every now and again people do. And one, what, Actually, one small thing to mention is apparently the um, students game before the Falcons on Friday was an absolute cracker. I think we won it by a point in the end, and the, the few people that went along, I think, actually had quite a good time watching that, certainly better than the evening game. But the other thing that um, I think we should probably chat about is Ealing and the Championship. If those who haven't heard, um, Ealing have withdrawn their application to join the Premiership and to get promoted on the basis that they had an independent audit or review um, of their case and of the ground, whether it would be suitable. And the independent review came back saying that it wasn't, in which case I had no basis really to appeal if ever did get to court. Like I said a few moments ago, that doesn't surprise me. I didn't think they would be successful. I think you were maybe a bit more positive than it would be. I didn't think it would be because I think there are a few are very, very, rightly or wrongly, are very strict with that criteria. If obviously you need the 10,001 and no way we're even going to have that. But I think it's, I do think that criteria isn't necessarily just out of, oh, the RFP has set an arbitrary standard. I mean, also there's the Sporting Grounds Act as well, where you have to have certain procedures in place with regards to top flight stadiums in, in certain sports. And I think possibly it may fall foul of that as well. So I think the RFP do have some base, some 
legislative basis as to why they, they impose these rules. But yeah, like I say, to me, it wasn't a surprise. And this raised questions, actually, because obviously no post relegation this season. But what about next season? You know, let, let's assume meaning doing the league again next season. Is, are we going to have that potential playoff between bottom of the Premiership and top of Championship if Ealing, for example, still don't reach that criteria? And I think that's kind of the main question coming up. Yeah, I think it's all been pushed back by a year now. So it'll be two years' time and there'll be the uh, promotion relegation decider match as opposed to the end of next season. But um, one thing it has done, it's forced the RFU's hand a bit. And I think they're now reviewing the entry requirements because I don't think they want a 13-team premiership. I think they want a 14-team premiership, but can't quite work out how to shoehorn it into the current arrangements because it's not really practical. So one thing it has done is it's, I think, forced their hand. And um, therefore, it might be that next year, Ealing don't change much in the application, but the requirements have somewhat changed. Either way, um, I think a lot of premiership clubs will be quite pleased that effectively it's ring friends for another season. So if we just go around the grounds and a quick round of the scores from the weekend. Um, on Friday night in the Premiership, Bristol pipped Gloucester by a point in the West Country Derby, 29-28. Um, we're not going to mention our defeat to London Irish anymore. Um, on Saturday, Bath, another good one in the West Country, 31-36 defeat Northampton. And then Harlequins beat Leicester by 26 points to 20. Cracking game that was. And then Wasps... Um, just like we did a few weeks ago, got lots and lots of points, this time at home against Worcester Warriors, 41 points to 12. Final game of the weekend is the Saracens Exeter Chiefs one. And if I look up right now, it is currently 31 points to 15 with about 10 minutes left. I'll just go around the scores from the Northeast this weekend and then we'll do the tables. So within the Northeast, um, Darlington lost 30-15 at home to Leeds. Tykes. Northeast Derby in National League 2 North, 27-24 against Bladen. Um, in the North Premier, Annick beat Sandal 20 points to 14, and uh, Billingham beat Wirral 26 points to 21. Consul got absolutely hammered 104-0 at Ilkley. Durham also got hammered by Cleckheaton 21 points to 68, and Old Broadland beat Morpeth quite heavily 45 points to 14. Um, score of the weekend probably has to go to Whitby, who beat Winlayton 56 points to 12, but given they're probably classified as a York stream, not going to give it to them. So I'll give it to Medicals, who scored the same amount of points, but conceded 21 against Novos. So if we just go around the tables, we're now at a situation where, um, in the local leagues especially, it's, you can kind of work out what's going on. So we'll start off with the Premiership. Leicester way out ahead still with, with 81 points. Saracens behind them with 72. Harlequins with 72 also. Northampton have 63. Exeter and Gloucester both have 62. So that fourth place is very close because also in the mix there, you've got London Irish with 58, Wasp with 57, Sale with 56. Then there's the next back, or you've kind of got Bristol in no man's land, probably going to finish 10th unless something seriously strange happens. Then we've got 32, Worcester have 30, and Bath have 29. So if I'm honest, I think if we get a a decent result at Sale next week, which isn't out of the question, then we might not end up finishing bottom. But easier to say that in hindsight, I think, than predict it beforehand. So we're now at the point of the season where, in the local leagues especially, you can kind of work out what's happened. Um, Durham, Northumberland won. Percy Park have won it. Um, They've got one game remaining. Most of the teams have played other games and they've got 118 points, um, whereas Northern have got 114. So they'll either get another five points or four points in the last game or they've won the league even without. Um, At the bottom of that league, you've got Horden and Peterley on 20 and then Acklam 
on 35 points, joint with Whitley Bay Rockcliffe. Not quite sure what the promotion relegation situation is there, whether it's the bottom two, bottom three, or bottom one, but there you are. Dover Northumberland two, Gisborough have won that one, also with a game in hand, and they're way out ahead. They've got 13 points as it stands, and Hartlepool have played all their games. At the bottom, Win Leighton, they've only got four points. Um, they've been on the wrong end of a lot of scores of the week, and I think the league table just shows that. Durham Northumberland Division 3 North. At the top of that, you've got Walls End, so they're getting promoted. Alongside in Durham, Northumberland, Durham and Northumberland 3 South, you've got Darlington Mountain Park Elizabethans, the kind of spin-off at the Darlington Mountain Park, who got won that one. Once again, not sure on the promotion relegation criteria, whether it's both of those lot go up, or whether there's a playoff or what happens going into, into the other one. In one northeast, the we're not too concerned about the top. Ilkley have won it. But um, at the bottom, unfortunately, Concert finished in 13th position out of 14 with 20 points, so it doesn't look too good for them. And Durham finished uh, 12th. Morpeth finished 6th in that league, so that's the spread of northeast teams there. In the North Premier, Anik finished a safe mid-table in 7th position. Very well done to them. Not too long ago, they were playing against May and Durham Northumberland leagues. In the slightly higher-up leagues, there are a couple of games still to play because they've got more matches in those leagues, a couple more teams. So uh, we'll give you updates on them, but Bladen might be able to pull off a great escape. They've got a game left, and um, if they win it, there's every chance they could stay up if Huddersfield don't. If Huddersfield don't win theirs. So another Friday nighter, hopefully slightly better result and certainly some slightly better refereeing. But once again, thank you for listening, everybody, and goodbye from me. Bye, everyone.